I think the CRNAs who stayed were um, were really kind to me, to be completely honest, kind and welcoming, but also kind of looked at me like an animal in a zoo, like, hey, what are you? How are you going to be? What are you doing here? <laughs> Welcome to the Awakened Anesthetist podcast, the first podcast to highlight the CAA experience. I'm your host, Mary Jean, and I've been a certified anesthesiologist assistant for close to two decades. Throughout my journey and struggles, I've searched for guidance that includes my unique perspective as a CAA. At one of my lowest points, I decided to turn my passion for storytelling and my belief that the CAA profession is uniquely able to create a life by design into a podcast. If you are a practicing CAA, current AA student, or someone who hopes to be one, I encourage you to stick around and experience the power of being in a community filled with voices who sound like yours, sharing experiences you never believed possible. I know you will find yourself here at the Awakened Anesthetist Podcast. Welcome in. Hello, all my fellow certified anesthesiologist assistants, AA students, and anesthetist colleagues. This is your host, Mary Jean, and welcome to our process series. I want to take you a little behind the scenes here because I switched up my release schedule after hearing episode 35 and hearing how it really resonated and worked to educate a lot of us, including myself. And so I wanted to share this next episode immediately to follow the episode 35, which is about opening CAA practice in the state of Nevada, and it follows the journey of three CAAs who worked to do that. Um, because the themes that were mentioned and the legislative process that we discussed with the Nevada CAAs makes this episode even easier to understand. And Lindsay's story as it takes place in New Mexico deepens part of the story that you heard in Nevada that I was not able to include. So these two episodes really complement each other, and I know after listening to them both, we are all going to have a much clearer understanding of the state legislative process as it pertains to CAA legislation. My greatest hope is that you hear something in these episodes that lets you believe that you can do your own hard thing. As always, these process episodes are meant to expand our collective understanding of what a CAA can be and do and move us all in the direction of creating our own life by design rather than default. So let's start this interview with Lindsay, like all things medical, with a quick timeout. Lindsay Diaz has been a certified anesthesiologist assistant for 15 years. She graduated from Emory's AA school in 2009 and took her first few jobs around Georgia before taking a chance on herself and following her passion for rock climbing with a move to New Mexico. In 2021, Lindsay was the first CAA to join a large private practice in Santa Fe. Even before setting a foot in the OR, she was already fighting false narratives and stigma about CAAs, but she made it her mission to prove her worth and win over her CRNA colleagues and staff. Then, just months after her job in Santa Fe started, in Lindsay's words, she accidentally became president of the New Mexico Academy of Anesthesiologist Assistants during one of New Mexico's biggest legislative pushes to stabilize the right for continued CAA practice in the state. 
Lindsay led the New Mexico Academy of Anesthesiologists Assistants to pass Senate Bill 35, securing CAA practice throughout the state of New Mexico and not isolated to one large university health system. I know this episode will expand any CAAs who feel like they are climbing uphill legislative battles, any CAAs who want to bet on themselves and begin a totally new adventure, and any CAAs who are thinking that big work needs to be done, but let fear or judgment hold them back. I'm so excited to share this conversation. Welcome, Lindsay, to The Awakened Anesthetist. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here as I'm a big fan of your podcast. So (laughs) thanks for having me, and I'm excited to share my story. Awesome. Uh, Let's get into it with a little rapid fire. These are kind of fun, and I think it really helps me get to know you. We've talked a few times, but just to get to know a little bit deeper, and then it really lets the audience get to know you. So let's um, start with whether you are an extrovert or an introvert. I'm quite extroverted. <laughs> That's a, a resounding yes. <laughs> and uh, are you a coffee girl or a tea gal? I'm like a one cup of coffee in the morning, and then I drink herbal tea the rest of the day. I'm oh. pretty obsessed with herbal teas, actually. Really? Yeah. Interesting. And are you coming into work late with your herbal tea after you've had your cup, or are you uh, getting there nice and early to take like a 15-minute break before your first case? I um, am pretty early. Normally, I bike into work most days, so I get there early enough to take a quick shower, not smell like death, and get to work. Wow. You take a shower at work? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Commitment. Cool. That feels like the New Mexico (laughs) lifestyle that you were wanting. It's exactly what I wanted. (laughs) Um, Okay. And this selfishly is not a rapid fire question, but it's uh, a personal interest of mine. So I'm going to describe a situation and you tell me um, what your answer is. So you wake up in the morning, the anesthesia board runner calls you or texts you and says, their handlers are down. Don't come into work. You have an unexpected day off. Tell me what you do. Oh, goodness. I drank some coffee at my leisure, Mm -hmm. um, not rushing to get out the door. And then I generally plan a hike or bike or something fun outside to do. Very cool. Great. Um, okay, and I would love for you to share um, with everyone just your cultural background and your upbringing and how it kind of shaped who you are today. So I grew up in a very education-based family. Um, when I was a kid, I remember going to my dad's PhD graduation, moving shortly thereafter from Florida to Alabama, um, my mom going through nursing school while we were children, us all kind of sitting at the table doing our homework together with my mom. Mm, cool. And then moving to Georgia for most of my childhood. Um, I'm the middle child of two amazing siblings. And um, yeah, education was just really on the forefront of what was important in my family. I have a very strong, loving family background, and I'm I'm really lucky to have that. Very cool. Tell me how you heard about the CAA profession first in this education-focused family. So I was pre-med, like so many Mm -hmm. other people, and I had shadowed a number of physicians who I was close with, were in my church, had different relationships with, and I took the MCAT. And shortly thereafter, you get all these things through the mail. I don't know if that happens anymore. I'm kind of old, but, (laughs) you know, you get podiatry flyers and chiropractic flyers, and I got a mailer from Emory's AA program. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what it was about it, but I was just interested. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I spoke to a number of my female physician mentors who were like, do it. Don't go into medicine. It's not the lifestyle we would pick if we had to do it over again. And it was kind of a resounding, like, check it out. So mm-hmm. that's how I found out about it. Hmm. And did you go directly from undergraduate to AA school at Emory or give us a little bit of that background? Yeah, I took a year off um, and I did some really interesting work. I did a lot of entomology um, work in undergrad as I'm pretty fascinated with insects. And I worked for the USDA doing research on different peach and pecan insect pests for a year. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it was really fun. I rode a four-wheeler around hundreds of acres of peach and pecan trees and it was a really good time. And so then you were like waiting to apply or you purposely took that year? Yeah, I was waiting to apply. wanted to save some money, make some money. Um, I was able to live at home with my parents and save some money during that time. So it was just a timing yeah. thing. Yeah. And what was CAA school like for you? Love it? Hate it? Don't remember it? Blocked it out? I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there were plenty of tears, let me mm-hmm. be clear. It was so challenging. I think the statement that so many people say is it's like trying to drink from a fire hose. But I made some of my best friends there. I still have those friendships. I also met so many really important mentors in my life. Jen Stever, Katie Monroe, Don Beggs. They've all been really integral in my growth, Mm. not only like through school, but as a practicing Mm -hmm. AA. And how did you form those mentor-mentee relationships? Was that built into Emory or is it just like a natural thing that happened? I think I just harassed them a lot. (laughs) You pushed your own agenda. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Well, good to know. I mean, I feel like the mentor relationship can be so expansive. And then you're like, well, how does one get a mentor? I don't think they ask for it. I think I insisted (laughs) upon it. (laughs) Well, it must have worked because when I was right after I interviewed Jen Stever, the current Quad A president, um, we're recording this in 2023. She was like, you really should talk to Lindsay. Like she's doing some awesome things in New Mexico. So it, it seems like it was a mutual relationship there. Okay, so you loved AA school. And then tell us about your first job. How did you transition out of AA school? Were like jobs thrown at you? Give us a little bit of that information. So yeah, I had multiple job offers, which was so nice. But my then boyfriend and now husband um, was limited in where he could work. And we looked at a number of different places and he got a job in Savannah, Georgia, where I did not rotate as a student. So I just applied and got the job and um, right out of school, worked at Memorial Hospital in Savannah. It was a really rad job because we did trauma, we did peds, we did hearts, and it was mandatory for new grads to do all of it. Mm, Very cool. Yeah. And it was really pretty integral also in my life too, as I made even more kind of phenomenal mentors there working with the South AA program knowing Chris Tyndall, who's been a great mentor to me, knowing Gina Scarborough, who has been an amazing mentor to me, and all the amazing people there. So I I loved that job. It was really great. How long were you there and why did you leave? I was there about two years and my husband got a job in South, Southwest, Southwest Georgia. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I kind of had to go along with him. Not the normal story. I feel like usually it's the AA that's saying, I can only work in these certain places. Here's where we can go. And, yeah. and this was almost the opposite right? Um, with your husband's job. 
Also interesting, not being a Georgia AA myself, I live in Kansas City, Missouri, just to hear little snippets of the Georgia CAA community, it just sounds so like idyllic or just really connected just because I guess there's so many more and it's been such a long-standing state of CAAs. I mean, you're right. And I, I think we'll get into later um, how naive I was about that mm-hmm. being a Georgia AA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like its own little mecca. Um, okay, so it sounds like from what we've talked about previously that you got a little bit more politically involved kind of each step of the way. How did that happen? Did did someone ask you? Did you ask someone? Were you offered some position? So um, I was asked to be one of the first AAs on OB team um, at a practice that I worked at in North Georgia, where, how do I say this kindly, where people were told that AAs couldn't do epidurals or spinals or practice in OB by other groups of people. And Mm. that really... Sorry, just to interrupt. Even in Mm -hmm. a state where... AAs are, I don't know if there's an equivalent amount of AAs and CRNAs in Georgia, but that was still happening, you're saying? Yeah, it was. Um, and, and it was a little bit of a battle that the physicians supported very much in getting us AAs into the OB positions. Um, but I got angry. Mm-hmm. That's really what happened. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I decided I was angry about that that I would not only do the work in clinic to show how proficient us AAs are in all aspects of our job, but that I needed to do something a little bit more. I was 10-ish years into my career, Mm -hmm. and I'd been pretty lazy, to be completely honest. I was a Quad A member, but I didn't do much more. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I got mad, (laughs) I joined the board in Georgia and started doing a little bit more with them. And I became a legislative monthly donor because if I was being told in Georgia that I couldn't do things, I was like, what are other people dealing with in other states? Mm-hmm. And soon I learned. <laughs> mm, yes, that's exactly my question. If you're in Georgia saying, no, you can't do this, or other groups are saying, no, we, you can't do this. Like I'm kind of used to that rhetoric in Missouri, but interesting. I want to press you a little bit on that anger. I'm just, you know, of course, everything's hindsight and our motivations. I'm just wondering if you would recommend starting this work based out of anger or if you would say like, well, gee, it really wasn't anger. It was maybe hurt or it was, you know, uh, not feeling validated, like something besides anger or what your thoughts are on that? To be completely honest, it started with anger. Hmm. Um, And I've always been a really passionate person in general. I don't like seeing people being marginalized. I like Mm -hmm. to stand up for people. And I felt like no one was standing up for us in this situation. And I'm a strong enough person to do that. So I think that anger probably turned into strength. And Mm -hmm. I harnessed that strength. And I'm still trying to grow that strength. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, that was, uh, I hope that wasn't too uh, hard or personal of a question, but anger is a lot to carry, you know? Indeed. If anger is motivating you every step of the way, that's a burden on you at some point, I would think. Yes. Okay. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, Okay. So you kind of stepped in to some little baby steps into the legislative process. 
And then somewhere along the line, you got an opportunity to move to New Mexico. Take us back to that time. In 2021, I began using a neural manifestation technique called to be magnetic. I had been working as a CAA, a certified anesthesiologist assistant, for over a decade, and I felt relatively happy, but just naggingly unfulfilled. I needed clarity on what my next steps in life should be. To be magnetic's neural manifestation process has given me exactly that clarity. TBM, as they call themselves, uses neuroscience, epigenetics, psychology, and the power of neuroplasticity to bring your life into alignment with your unique purpose. While some other manifestation programs out there are selling you millions and mansions, TBM promises to bring you back to your whole, worthy, authentic self, and from that space, you build the life uniquely meant for you. This work won't resonate with everyone, but I believe CAAs are in a unique position to find clarity and fulfillment using the tools offered in Tubi Magnetic's Pathway membership. If you're curious about how TBM can bring you more clarity with upcoming big decisions or questions, check out the links in the show notes. They offer a free clarity workshop that I've linked, and it's a great place to start to see if the TBM method resonates with you. And if you feel ready to dive into all the workshops, challenges, and daily practices offered by To Be Magnetic, you can sign up for their Pathway membership using my exclusive code, all caps, AAPODCAST15, for 15% off your yearly or monthly Pathway membership. I use TBM's Pathway every day to feel more connected with myself and to receive clarity on all things career, love, money, parenting, and my next right steps. Use all caps AA Podcast 15 to receive the best deal offered by TBM and get started building your life by design rather than default whenever you're ready. Happy manifesting. I was just looking for something different in my life. I felt very established, I felt very safe. My husband and I were traveling out west every couple of weeks to climb or hike or or do some personal endeavors that were important to us. And I just asked myself one day, like, why, why are we staying here? Why aren't we moving out west? And I looked at a number of jobs and I applied to a number of jobs and just nothing seemed to really be what I needed it to be or wanted to be until this random job in Santa Fe, New Mexico popped up on gas work. Um, I literally had to Google where Santa Fe, New Mexico was, to be completely honest. Like, <laughs> no shame. And I re- yeah, I mean, in all sincerity. And I remember telling my husband, like, hey, they have rock climbing. This is our place. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I interviewed. I loved the group. They told me I would be the first AA out there. And um the physicians were entirely supportive mm. and entirely behind me and were supportive the whole way of me getting licensed and and coming out. I, I don't think I would have taken this job or the position of being the first AA had the physician group not been so incredibly supportive. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's very comforting. That's just like, yeah. you want to be wanted and then you want to also feel safe that if you're going to go out there and kind of be one of the first and kind of fight that battle, which we can talk about a little bit as well. You want to feel like you've got some backup. What did they, 
what did, did they prepare you at all for like the environment you're going to be walking into? Because um, it was a larger group, right? Like 30 plus CRNAs and then docs on top of that. So um, it was a group of about 20. Okay. Um, 20 CRNAs and then physicians on top of that. Yeah. Gotcha. So um, they did. They did mentally prepare me for it. They told me that they took a hard line with the CRNAs and said AAs will be coming. Mm-hmm. Um, we would love for you all to stay. Mm-hmm. But if you choose not to, because you're not going to be a team player, leave. Wow. And so there were a number of people who left. Incidentally, some of their time overlapped with when I started, but um, a number of people chose to leave. I think the CRNAs who stayed were um, were really kind to me, to be completely honest, mm-hmm. kind and welcoming, mm-hmm. but also kind of looked at me like an animal in a zoo, like, hey, what are you? Uh-huh. How are you going to be? Yes. What are you doing here? Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And how did you approach that? Like, how did you, what you're like, okay, I'm going to go in, I'm going to act this way or behave this way, or I'm going to tell them all about CAAs, or I'm going to stand back? I mean, I always try to lead by example. And I think the best way to show anyone who you are and what you're about is just by doing what you're good at. And I'm good at caring for patients. Mm -hmm. I care very much for my patients. And I care very much for my coworkers. So I made sure that I was the coworker that I needed to be, regardless of what people thought of me or my profession. Mm -hmm. And I took care of patients the way that was up to my standards. And how were you received after a couple months went by and sort of the welcome went off? (laughs) You know, pretty well. I think it's pretty hard to be rude to people who you see are good people. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think it's hard to not be kind to someone who's kind to you. Yes. I'm not saying that there aren't those people out there who are capable of just being rude and and things like that, but I really didn't experience that much. Mm -hmm. And... You were kind of in the early stages of your career when this legislative upheaval started to feel closer and closer. Can you describe Senate Bill 35 and what you knew about it going to New Mexico and then what you learned about it and kind of ended up working on? So in going to New Mexico, um, I was fairly naive. I knew New Mexico had like some weird legislative things like that we were supervised at a one to three ratio and that there was some time limit on it. To be completely honest, I didn't know all the details. I came in and emailed the board saying I wanted to be a board member. I wanted to be involved. I was involved in Georgia. And there wasn't really a position for me except for PR chair. Mm-hmm. So I gladly took that. <laughs> yeah. And how how many CAAs were in New Mexico, just for reference, kind of when you came? Oh, gosh. I, I guess like 60-ish. Okay. Small. That's Um, still very small. Mm -hmm. Very small. So I took the PR board position and being on a couple of board Zoom calls and kind of getting up to speed with everything, I learned all the details of the direness Mm. (laughs) of the situation in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And describe that a little bit for us or a lot a bit for us, because it took me a couple times to understand exactly the battle you were facing. Cool. So um, just for a little historical background, AAs have been practicing in New Mexico since 2001 at the University of New Mexico. In 2015, some legislation was passed that said the AAs can practice in Class A counties, which are basically the most urban counties in New Mexico. But there is a sunset on that. 
meaning that that would end in 10 years. So in 2025, the clause for AAs to practice outside of the University of New Mexico would end, Mm. meaning my practice in Santa Fe would disappear. There's also a practice in Las Cruces, New Mexico, with a number of AAs there, and that practice would end also. Okay. There was also the stipulation that AAs have to be supervised at a one to three ratio everywhere except the University of New Mexico. Huh. Very specific. I mean, just like random little stipulations. Yeah. And we could get into the details of how that happened and why that happened, but that's just Mm -hmm. getting into the weeds. Can you say like, was it because other legislation was passed and like these little snippets were along the ride with that other legislation and they kind of like passed through or give us a high level overview? (laughs) So our representatives here in New Mexico aren't compensated and have jobs and um, they're very busy people. Mm. Our sessions are very short. Um, Legislators don't like to see groups fighting. So they ask that the CRNA group and the AA group come together to make a compromise Mm -hmm. um, with this 2015 bill. And in the compromise, that's what they decided in 2015 would become law. Okay. So actually the CAAs had a small voice or some voice in this sunset clause and what exactly it would look like. And I imagine at the time they thought, well, anything's better than nothing, sort of a uh, that slippery slope mentality. I, I can't speak to mm-hmm. to what they were thinking because I wasn't there. And yeah. Although I am dear friends with some of the people that were there. Um, yeah, I think it was a, something's better than nothing and let's get this going. Got it. Okay. Go back. I'm sorry. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I I guess this comes back to I came onto the board and kind of got up to speed as to how dire this was. So this past session was one of our long sessions in New Mexico. You have a long session one year and then a short ses- session the next year. And those short sessions um, generally only cover fiscal matters. And in order to hear anything else, it has to be approved by the governor. So basically, we had 2023 to get our legislation passed. 2024, it wouldn't be relevant, and we'd have to beg the governor to get us in. And then Mm. 2025 is when we sunset. So 2023 was our last opportunity. And little did I know what I was coming into. (laughs) Yes. How did you go from being the PR manager to then the president? Uh, Our amazing president, um, Abigail Moore, was term limited out. So Abby and the board, before I came on, had done the amazing work of securing us a lobbyist, meeting with the CRNA groups to come to some negotiations, talking about things, working things out among legislators, and had really kind of gotten us primed for this legislative session. Mm. I would love to hear a little bit more about the lobbyist relationship. Like as an outsider, I've heard, you know, the Quad A say it takes so much money to pay a lobbyist every month. And like we absolutely need a lobbyist in order to get our legislation. Can you just give us a little bit of of, of like what it actually was like to have a lobbyist? First and foremost, we had the best lobbyist on earth. (laughs) Very important, I'm sure. (laughs) His name is Scott Scanlon, and he absolutely was the most phenomenal human I could have ever imagined working with. Wow. Um, Also, he was not cheap because he was good. 
Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And what like you like Googled or uh, how do you obtain a lobbyist who understands like they have to then be educated on this particular issue or basically they they get up to speed really quickly because mm-hmm. unfortunately poor Scott was just inundated with us. Um I bet between our lobbyist, the NMSA lobbyist, Rich Evans, who's the national lobbyist for Quad A. I mean, we text hundreds of times a day. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, you're you're really involved. I'm very lucky that I had a super congenial relationship with Scott, our lobbyist, as did the rest of our board. He he's a really easy human to talk to. He advised us on every single matter. He would tell us like every day you need to be at the Capitol this time or this time. We need two to three AAs. You need to be in scrubs or you need to be in this attire and you need to have the sticker and you need to. And then I'd get on the floor or my co-workers would come in and they'd get on the floor where there would be legislators and uh, he would point them out. That's so-and-so. I need you to go talk to her. She needs to hear this. Oh, my goodness. Wow. That's representative so-and-so. They represent this. She represents you and your husband. You need to talk to her about this. So it was a very intimate relationship with with our lobbyist. Oh, I have like a thousand questions running through my head. Um, (laughs) let Let me see here. It could be a whole episode. It's it's a lot. I really, I'm so interested because this is the things you like, I guess on some level kind of understand someone's doing, but I've never actually talked to someone who's actually doing that work where you're speaking to legislators in, I assume, the Capitol building or mm-hmm. something. Okay, but I feel like maybe I have one question before that. You know, you were elected to the NMAAA presidency and you had what six months before this happened or you like i had like two months two months okay <laughs> well sure why not six months two months okay so Sounds you great. were thrown in uh, things that were already happening obviously um and you just kept the wheels turning and you were also working still which i feel like is an interesting piece tell us about your work schedule and then how you fit this other work in and then i want to hear a bunch of questions answered about like actually speaking <laughs> to the legislators. So basically any moment that I was not at work, I was at the Capitol. And just so people know, Santa Fe is the capital of New Mexico. So um, thank you. Yes. <laughs> it's yes. Um, that's a real blessing that I was able to just go like five minutes down the road. Yeah. So I venture to say I spent anywhere from 10 to 30 hours a week at the Capitol talking to people, being there, lobbying. I just kind of became a staple at the Capitol, as did so many of my board members and coworkers. Mm-hmm. I know I'm talking about myself, but I I would be remiss if I didn't mention just how much work went into this on behalf of every member of NMAAA, be it from them covering shifts for me so that I could be there for special yeah. hearings yes. or um, helping the other board members be there. It was really, really huge joint effort on the part of every AA in New Mexico. And you had been the first AA at this practice. So I imagine, I hope by this time, there's some more people to like share the coverage because it can't just be you going to the Capitol. So there's a stretch of time there where more AAs joined your practice. Yeah, um, we had six to seven AAs at that point. Okay. So they were very supportive of covering for me, doing doing whatever they could to help support our endeavor also. Okay. Yes. Because that is the real, like, who's doing this? If an if a CAA needs to get out of work to 
go to the Capitol, someone needs to work for that person. Um, Okay, so thank you for shedding some light. I think the way I want to approach this uh, millions of questions I have in my brain is just like, can you paint the picture of the first time you got up in the morning and you realize that you're going to have to walk into the Capitol building and speak to someone? What did that feel like? You know, just boots on the ground logistics and like also just like tactical, like where did you stand? Where did you go? Like that whole thing. <laughs> uh, first and foremost, there were a lot of like sweaty armpits. Uh-huh. Like, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, I have sweaty armpits thinking about this. <laughs> Yeah, I I was like super nervous. I brushed my teeth like four or five times. Uh, <laughs> all all the OCD tendencies uh-huh, came out. Uh-huh. But I'm I'm really lucky that our lobbyist was really so phenomenal. He would tell me where to meet him, and he would basically throw me in front of legislators, me and my board members and friends. Hi, this is Lindsay Diaz. Lindsay's one of the AAs. They're passing S Bill 30, SB 35. What what would you like to talk to her about? What questions do you have about it? He did a really good job initially of breaking the ice for me. I would tell him every morning, Scott, I think I'm going to puke. And <laughs> that really bothered him. <laughs> He's he like, why? Pretty... This is so cool. Normal. I think he really thought I was going to puke also. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And it became a bit of a joke as things went on because I knew it made him so uncomfortable. I found it fun (laughs) to say. But but yeah, that's kind of how it started. He would literally throw us in front of people. And slowly but surely, legislators got to know our faces and got to know who we were. Oh, you're the AA bill. You're SB 35. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds good. We support that. Just to kind of brush me along. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, and they're sitting in a, you know, like I'm picturing a TV, like they're all in these seats. Like, you could tell me that part. So sometimes you're going office to office. Um, okay. And you're talking to um, their office administrators or the people that advise them, if you can. Mm-hmm. And every now and then you get snuck into their office and you have a minute to actually chat with them. And some of those days I was taking paperwork to them or I had um, NMAAA had these bags made that had NMAAA all over them with stickers and hand sanitizers and information on our bill. So some days it was handing out bags to them. Mm-hmm. Some days it was being on the Senate floor before Senate went into session. And as they trickled in, I would run from one to the other to talk to, to think. Oh my gosh. Wow. Um Wow. It's, I, it was so intimidating. (laughs) I just, I love that we're sharing this story because it's really awesome to hear a real person who I'm now looking at, you know, who feels kind of like me telling me something that feels so scary. And like, I just can't imagine myself doing it. Um, And hearing your story is like, okay, maybe I could do that. Like, you know, it's possible. Sounds like with great leadership, yeah, and just kind of doing it scared also, which is a good thing to know. You can do things scared. I mean, not only are you capable, but everyone's capable. I didn't mm-hmm. know that I was capable, but not only did I watch myself be uncomfortable like that, but I watched my coworkers. I watched mm. my board members. I watched one of the shyest people I've ever met, one of my coworkers, Daniel, walk up to legislators and shake their hands and say, I'm an AA and I live in Santa Fe and I want to keep living here. Wow. Wow. That's powerful. Um, 
you're spending up to 30 hours a week doing this. I'm assuming your CRNA coworkers kind of got wind that, gee, the CAA seemed to be all going somewhere. Like, what was that dynamic? It was interesting. I, I think one of the most interesting days was a day that I was meeting with a senator, um, a pretty high-ranking senator, and I went in his office to be signed in. And on the sign-in sheet, you can kind of see their agenda for the day. And I saw that two of my CRNA coworkers were on his agenda to discuss our bill later in the day. Um, so that was quite challenging. Oh, wow. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, I get angry. So I was angry. Yeah. Um, they knew what we were doing. It, it mm-hmm. was no secret that I was the president of NMAAA. It was no um, secret that I was working really hard to get our bill passed. I never experienced any unkindness or inappropriateness at all at work in regards to our bill or the work. As a matter of fact, a couple of my close CRNA friends at work really supported me and looked out for me and applaud our endeavors and the bill Mm -hmm. passing. So I had support from CRNAs and then I had quiet opposition from some of the CRNAs at work. And to this day, I don't think they know that I saw their name on that Mm -hmm. agenda, but I did. I kind of have my own idea of why CRNAs are so against us is maybe just the easiest way to say it. Of course, we're not talking about all, but just what is that thing that just separates us and them um, and doesn't allow them to see us as like a equal partner? What are your thoughts now that you've gone through this and maybe you've, you know, seen behind the curtain a little bit? It, can you give any sort of like theory on what CRNAs think is so wrong or bad about us? In my experience here in New Mexico, I think them having never been exposed to AAs at all really made us like dehumanized. And I think that it's very easy to think something's terrible or out to get you or the boogeyman when you've never met that thing or that person or experienced what it is or how it works. I think anytime we make something seem less than human or less than equal to us on any level, we don't respect it. Yeah. I think... Us AAs that came in in the first wave of AAs in my practice, being great practitioners and great coworkers, really changed the tides in in the way we were viewed at work. But I, I do. I think it's just subhumanization. I think that on a national level, that happens a lot yeah. to people who have just never worked with AAs. Yes, I would agree. I think there that dehumanization when you're not together with someone, um, you kind of assume the worst and you assume that person's coming in as a threat to yourself. Any thoughts on how to counteract that? Like moving forward, how do we bridge that huge divide between really the political level of CRNAs and then like CAAs as a profession? I think the only way to do it is to continue to grow as a profession and expose what amazing providers we are to both CRNAs and physicians and surgeons throughout the nation. I think when we come in, we make such an impression because so many negative things have generally been said in advance of us coming. I I believe that us coming in, being amazing practitioners, being great coworkers, and representing our profession well 
turns the tide. Yeah. Yeah. And I haven't really had the chance to mention this, but I would be remiss if I didn't. The only way we get into new practices and the only way we get into new states is sadly with a ton of money. Mm. How much do you think it costs? Can you tell us what the lobbyists cost a month? Is that allowed? So um, for our lobbyist, it was approximately $40,000 a year. Okay. Wow. And how did the NMAAA get that money? Well, we didn't have it. <laughs> <laughs> we we only had 60 members when I came in. So think about dues and the math doesn't add up. Um so we fundraised. We did some big fundraising. Um, and we also got grants from the Quad A Legislative Fund. Mm, uh, to what tune? Tens of thousands or? Tens of thousands, yes. Okay, so that's the the legislative fund is what CAAs, you know, the Quad A ask all of the membership to donate to. And then they in turn use a portion of the, that money or all of the money if, it's, if you're donating specifically to the legislative fund to things Correct. like this movement in New Mexico. Correct. Okay. Without legislative fund donors, we wouldn't have been able to sustain practice here in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really puts it into like a particular, like we have to have this lobbyist. The lobbyist costs this much money. This is not just like a, we need money for money's sake. It's a lot, (laughs) but it's worth it, right? Like we are expanding practice here in New Mexico. I can't really go into details, but we have a number of different practices in different counties that are reaching out to us and super interested in having AAs. So not only did this save the practices that are here, but hopefully it's going to open up more practices to more AAs in this state. Mm -hmm. Um, Before we close, I would love to hear the day uh, that the bill passed. What what were you guys doing? Did you know beforehand? I um, wasn't planning on being an MAAA president, so I was planning my life <laughs> and planning my 40th birthday trip, and I planned a trip to Jordan. Oh. Um, so I was literally across the world. <laughs> um, our bill passed all committees unanimously, passed the House unanimously, and passed the Senate with one oppositional vote, and then went to the governor's office, and I flew out to Jordan that day. Wow. And the governor had, I I don't remember the details. I think it's like 10 days to sign it or either it became a pocket veto or she could outright veto it. And just FYI, every state's different with these laws. Like no state legislators, the same legislature is the same. Um, So I was trying to celebrate my 40th birthday in Jordan while texting and staying in touch with everyone (laughs) and and making sure I, I didn't miss anything. But I woke up one morning in the city of Amman, Jordan, and had a million texts. And uh, one of the first ones I read was from my friend and fellow board member, (laughs) Chrissy. And she said, wake up, Diaz. The governor signed our bill. Oh, yay. Yeah. Was this on your birthday? No, I think it was a couple days past my birthday, but (laughs) it might as well have been. It felt like my birthday. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. And was it like you just had no, um, like, there was no sense of whether you were going to win or not. You just Is don't it just know. Like it's okay. Okay. You don't know if like the governor's good friend is a CRNA who opposes AA practice. You don't, you just, oh, yeah. or if she's just in a bad mood and someone told mm-hmm. her something about our bill and made us sound nefarious. It's just so up in the air. 
And I think that was the worst thing about the whole legislative session is there are no guarantees in politics. Mm, Yeah, politics is difficult. I mean, it's um, unfortunate that so much of politics is involved in us being successful and maintaining sustainability as a profession. And yet we need to kind of push through that. So I really appreciate you humanizing the whole political process so that other CAs who are listening can possibly see themselves doing this. Um, I would love to hear what's next for you as you enjoy your life by design in New Mexico. Is there anything that you're like, okay, this is behind me and I want to do X, Y, Z. What's next for you? Um, I'm, I'm proud of the power that I've found within myself through this political process. So there will be a lot of rock climbing and hiking in my future. And I also have recently taken on the position of chairwoman of Quade's Communications. So I plan on diving a little more into that and having some more fun with that position and making communication from Quade members and to the Quade themselves a little bit more accessible. That's kind of my goal with my new position here. That's kind of all I have planned for now. That sounds awesome. And just more days biking to work. I know you have a hot tub in your backyard, right? (laughs) (laughs) Enjoying that. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to say for just a simple enjoyment of this life that you've created and worked really hard to secure. Yeah. So congratulations. I I really um, applaud your efforts and all of your efforts of your colleagues in New Mexico. I think it's a blueprint for other people to do similar things in other states. Are you open to other CAAs who are maybe uh, inspired or want to hear a little bit more behind the scenes contacting you? And if so, what's the best way to do that? Always. I'm always open for people to reach out to me and I, I hope I can be of help to them. You can find me on the CAA Discord. I am Rockyronium and constantly chiming in and trying to mold and shape these young professionals that are interested mm-hmm. in our career. Mm-hmm. Also, you're welcome to email me. And my email is Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y, C as in cat, D as in dog, Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S, at gmail.com. Perfect. I'll put that all in the show notes. I really appreciate your time and sharing your story. um, And I just wish you all the best. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed hearing Lindsay's story and about the win in New Mexico. After we stopped recording, Lindsay confided in me that she was actually so scared before every visit to Capitol Hill that she ended up losing 15 pounds from stress over the course of the legislative effort. One time that still haunts her, she was called out by a state representative on the legislative floor, being told that she was playing dirty and who did we, the CAAs, think we were? And she started crying right there. Lindsay gave me permission to share this really vulnerable story, and I'm so grateful because it really shows the full picture of her experience. And the truth is, this is really hard. And I think we all wish we didn't have to fight for our right to practice. Lindsay also wants us to know that her few terrible experiences were the outlier. Almost all of her interactions while campaigning were positive and supportive, and she would walk out feeling proud of her and her colleagues' efforts. Lindsay's resounding message after all that she's been through was to know that the fear will be there. It may not even go away after the second or the tenth time you have to speak to someone, 
but you have the choice to act anyways, to do it scared. Possibly that's the only option our profession has if we hope to continue moving the needle forward. And we don't all have to storm Capitol Hill. The fight also requires our effort in small day-to-day ways. Mostly, it requires us all to care in some way because positive, transformative growth will take all of us. If you liked this episode and want to do one small act to help our profession grow, please share this episode with a fellow CAA colleague, AA student, or both. Hearing how one CAA does their hard thing shows us all that we can do it too. Talk soon. That was so nerve-wracking. No, you did great. But it did flow. Yes. <laughs> it flowed well. <laughs> yes, it was great. Oh, good. I'm glad. Okay, I'm going to press stop.